Warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, UN Climate Change Conference gets underway in Poland and tributes pour in for South Africa's struggle stalwart, Mendim Simang. In economics news, analysts expect GDP numbers to show that South Africa has come out of technical recession and in sports news, Croatian midfielder Luka Modric crowned best player in the world. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Former intelligence officials in Burundi have given a detailed account of an organized program to eliminate any critiques of President Pierre Nkurunziza's third term in office. They allege the country's security services are running secret torture and detention sites. There has been unrest in the Central African country since current President Pierre Nkurunziza ran for a third term and won a disputed election in 2015. The BBC's Maud Julian reports. At the height of the violence in Burundi in 2015, some of the people who opposed the president's bid for re-election were shot in the streets. Now, former regime insider that the repression has got a BBC investigation concentrated on one house in particular. Pictures posted on social media showed a red liquid which looked like blood flowing from its gutter. Two former intelligence agents told us the house had been used as a secret detention site and that men had been killed there. Six people have been shot and killed by police in eastern Burkina Faso during what security referred to as a terrorist attack on a security patrol. An officer was also wounded in the incident. Burkina Faso, bordering Mali and Niger, has been battling jihadist attacks over the last three years. Attacks initially began in the north of the country, but have since spread to the east near the border with Togo and Benin. The Southwest State Parliament of Somalia has once again postponed the region's presidential elections scheduled for December 5 due to technical problems. It has also cited what the Electoral Commission says are huge tasks still to be completed before the vote. Tensions between the federal government and state authorities have mounted in recent weeks after Mogadishu tried to block the candidacy of former Al-Shabaab Islamist militant Mukhtar Robo. Their highly anticipated election will now take place on the 19th of December. It is the third time that the regional presidential election has been delayed. Head of Sahen Research Organization, Matt Bryden, gives an analysis. There are, there are two types of problems at work here. Um, the main one, I think most would argue, is political, uh, that um, the, the engagement of the federal government or attempts of the federal government to shape the electoral process in Southwest State are creating divisions and dysfunction within the Southwest State institutions. And so there's a continuous of turmoil, and we've seen elections now postponed several times. A two-day meeting of South Sudan's ceasefire and transitional security arrangement monitoring mechanism has ended in Sudan. An announcement was made that guns have fallen silent in South Sudan since October 31st when the country held historic celebration to mark the signing of a new peace agreement by President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Mashar. Communications officer for the mechanism, Ruth Finney. We commend the actions of the parties respecting the ceasefire in the majority of the country, but we also want them to focus on the areas where the peace is in jeopardy and and for these areas to not be left behind, that if we're going to implement the ceasefire, we implement it everywhere across the country. 
And finally, litigation on behalf of the victims of listeriosis can now move forward after the High Court in Johannesburg, South Africa, granted them a class action certificate on Monday. This paves the way for them to claim against Tiger Brands. The source of the outbreak, which lasted from 2016 until March this year, was traced to a factory owned by Tiger Brands Unit Enterprise Foods. More than a 1,000 people contracted the disease and there were 218 deaths recorded. Tami Malusi from Richard Spoor Tennis, who are representing the victim, says the ruling doesn't necessarily mean that Tiger Brands will be compensating victims as yet. There is 1,060 confirmed cases based on the work that is done by the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. We think the number might be more. There is four categories of people that are forming part of the class. The first is people that contracted listeria. The second is people that contracted listeria in the utero through their mothers. The third is dependents of people that lost breadwinners through listeria. And the fourth is people that supported and had a duty to support other people that had listeriosis. We are going to be filing our summons with the court early in January, and then from that point on, we'll ask for a hearing to litigate this matter. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. go back in time to today in 1996, the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa is approved by Parliament. The Constitution is regarded as one of the most progressive constitutions in the world after multi-party negotiation process that began in 1990. Today in history, 1996. The head of the United Nations has opened a critical climate change conference in Poland with a message to the world that we are in deep trouble. Secretary General Antonio Guterres again warned that climate change is running faster than we are and that counter-efforts must meet the rapidly rising global temperatures before it is too late. The meeting in Poland is regarded as the most important gathering since the agreement on the Paris Climate Change Accord was reached in 2015. United Nations correspondent Sean Bryce Peace has more. Antonio Guterres is not mincing his words on the subject, appealing to world leaders gathered in Katowice, Poland, of the gravity of the situation, urging bold actions to up efforts to avert what is likely to be a catastrophe if rising global temperatures are not slowed significantly. Climate change is the most important issue we face. It affects all our plans for sustainable development and a safe, secure and prosperous world. So it's hard to comprehend why we are collectively still moving too slowly and even sometimes moving in the wrong direction. The IPCC's special report tells us that we still have time to limit temperature rise, but that time is running out. According to the World Meteorological Organization, the 20 warmest years on record have been in the past 22 years, with the top four in the past four years. Guterres pointed to the concentration of carbon dioxide being the highest it has been in three million years, and that emissions are now growing again. Listen to British environmentalist Sir David Attenborough. Right now, we are facing a man-made disaster of global scale, our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. The political unity built towards the Paris Climate Change Accord three years ago has been undermined by a rise in populist governments, where short-term national agendas trump the collective good. And while the U.S. administration of President Donald Trump has withdrawn from the agreement, former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger believes all is not lost. Because if you look a little bit beyond Washington, you will see that it is the states and the cities, its local governments, that control 70% of our emissions. 
and you will see all the extraordinary work that is going on on the state and city level in America. So the states and the cities are still in, in the Paris Agreement. Our financial institutions are in. Our academic institutions are still in. The governors and the mayors are still in. The United States is still in. And we're doing an extraordinary job there by staying in. Yes, we have a Meshuggah leader, leader in Washington that is not in, that is out. But remember that America is more than just Washington or one leader. While the World Bank announced that it would now give equal weight to curbing emissions while helping poor countries deal with the disastrous effects of global warming, CEO of the World Bank, Kristalina Georgieva. We are announcing uh, $200 billion of climate finance, of which $100 billion comes from the public sector arms of the World Bank Group, IBRD and IDA. And what is very important is that half of this money would go for adaptation. We are, for the first time, putting adaptation and mitigation on equal footing. The World Bank says the money would also improve weather forecasts and provide early warning and climate information services for 250 million people in 30 developing countries. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pees in New York. The debate on the Constitutional Review Committee's land expropriation report will take place in South Africa's National Assembly today. The report recommended that Section 25 of the Constitution be amended to allow for land expropriation without compensation. Mercedes Percent recaps on how the processes unfolded up to today. It was on the 27th of February this year when an EFF motion to expropriate land without compensation was debated in the National Assembly. The debate took place on the 40th anniversary of the death of the founding father of the PAC, Robert Mangali Sosobukwe. Leading the debate was EFF leader Julius Malema. Fellow South Africans, almost 400 years ago, a criminal by the name of Jan van Riebeck landed in our native land and declared an already occupied land by the native population as a no man's land. Van Riebeck, the first descendant of the Dutch to arrive in the Cape, will later lead a full-blown colonial genocide anti-black land dispossession criminal project, arguing that simply because our people could not produce title deeds, this land that they have been living in for more than 1,000 years was not their own. The ANC amended the EFF motion in the House. It was passed with over 240 votes. All parties except the DA, COPE, FF+, ACDP and IFP supported the motion. The results were announced by House Chairperson Cedric Frolik. Honourable members, the outcome of the division is as follows. Those in favour, 241. Those against, 83. There's no abstentions and the motion as amended is therefore agreed to. The PAC, which has one seat in Parliament, was not in the House when the motion was debated and passed. This is because PAC leader Lutando Mbinda was in the Eastern Cape to attend various activities to commemorate Robert Sobukwe's death. Mbinda said the passing of the resolution on land expropriation without compensation was the best way to honor the PAC's founding father. Let me start by saying we really appreciate the the position that has been taken by the African parties uh, in parliament. So uh, there was no other way to honor him at least uh, what a better way, I mean, or the best way of honoring the, the, the defier of the antifire. So as PAC, we were really, really very, very happy. In their draft resolution, the EFF wanted an ad hoc committee to be established to review Section 25 of the Constitution, but the ANC amended the motion to allow the Constitutional Review Committee to carry out the task. Public hearings were held in all nine provinces. Most of those who participated in the provincial hearings wanted Section 25 of the Constitution to be amended to allow the expropriation of land without compensation. 
The last public hearings took place at Goodwood in Cape Town on the 4th of August. Some of those who participated in the Cape Town leg of public hearings expressed different views. I am totally against land grab. That is totally illegal. And we all know historically for a fact that when the white people came to the Cape, there were no cell phones, there was no Kentucky, no shopping centers, no farms, nothing. There was bungee, bushes and wild animals. They had to work hard to work. Allow her to speak. Allow her to speak. Now when we say the constitution must be changed, we don't say white people will have no land. Why must settler farms in Stellenbosch have 13 farms? We have no land. Why must Anton Johann Rupert have land the size of two Macassas and I have no land? Why must Crystal Beast have Lowland Sport the size of two Somerset Wessels and I am disinherited and disowned for that reason? The constitution must be changed. Poor black people, we have not nothing. The land belongs to the white people in, in this Western Cape. The DA municipality where I'm serving, every time we are sitting for council meetings, we are selling land left, right and centre. By the time section 25 is amended, there will be no land left for the poor people. The monitorium on uh, government land needs to be frustrated with speed. Because what we are seeing is that white organisations like DA, are selling the public land for private consumption. If we use the exact same racist argument that the ANC is using, then there would be no ANC. It is strange that they seem to be completely ignorant to a thousand-year history that would demand that the whole of Southern Africa, from here to Kenya, should be given to the population of the original Khoi and the San people. Public hearings based on the written submissions continued in Parliament after the provincial leg of the hearings. Black First Land First leader Andy Lemgritama and Afri Forum Deputy CEO Ernst Roots were among those who made presentations in the hearings. They were on opposite sides on land dispossession and ownership. Land expropriation without compensation means taking land from whites, the beneficiaries of theft, and giving it to black people, the victims of this crime. Land in the hands of black people must be excluded from expropriation. That is why we say, hands off the Nguanyama Trust. Leave the Nguanyama Trust alone. Take land of white people, because that land in white hands is stolen property. It is regularly argued, and especially in this house, that whites stole the land. This is the single biggest historical fallacy of our time. There are three ways in which white people acquired land, namely the settlement on empty land, the purchase of land through treaties, cooperation and agreements, and most controversial but least significant by conquest. The committee adopted its final report with recommendations on the 15th of November, but Afri Forum challenged it in the High Court in Cape Town. It wanted to urgently interdict Parliament from debating the report pending the outcome of a judicial review of the committee proceedings. The matter was heard before a full bench of the High Court, presided over by Judge Vincent Saldana and Judge Josia Dolamo. Judge Saldana granted an order against AfriForum on Friday last week. As we indicated, we will hand out an order this morning with reasons to follow in due course. Uh, This is the order. One, the relief sought by the applicant under Part A, save for that of cost, is dismissed. Two, the issue of cost stands over to be determined in the proceedings under Part B. If such proceedings are not pursued... The cost of Part A will be determined by this court. Three, the parties may may between themselves settle a timetable with regard to the proceedings under Part B and may approach either the judge president of this division or this court to make such timetable an order of court. I concur. Is so ordered. 
The order paved way for the debate to continue uninterrupted. The Constitutional Review Committee will bring the report before the House today for debate and to seek final approval before a resolution can be passed. The same report was also expected to be debated in the NCOP today, but that has been rescheduled to take place tomorrow morning. That report by Mercedes percent in Cape Town. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy. Pride in the ordinary, humble people of this country. You have shown such a calm, patient determination to reclaim this country as your own from the rooftops free at last. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. South Africa's ruling African National Congress has joined the family of the struggle stalwart Mendim Simang to mourn his sad passing. Msimang succumbed to cancer five days before his 90th birthday. The former ANC Treasurer General and High Commissioner joined the then liberation movement in exile in 1961, Mbali Tetani reports. Messengers of condolences continue to pour in following the death of ANC veteran Mendim Simang. The struggle stalwart died during the early hours of Monday morning at the age of 89. He lost his life after a long battle with cancer. Uncle Mendy, as he was affectionately known, was a long-serving member of the ruling party. He cut his wisdom teeth along with the likes of Walter Sisulu in the ANC Youth League and served his articles at the law firm of Oliver Tambo and Nelson Mandela. His first wife, Agnes Msimang, passed away in October this year. Msimang was the widower to the late former health minister, Manto Shabalalam Simang, ANC veteran and family spokesperson, Mavuso Msimang. It was a relief to see him eased out of the pain in which he was. The last uh, 48 hours of his life were not easy at all. Um, but absolutely, he has been with us. He has been the pillar, the patriarch of uh, the huge Simon family. And his departure is just going to leave that gap that people talk about. It, uh, uh, we, 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 will, we will have to find a way of existing without him but but at 90 years of age almost we're grateful that uh, he was able to live that long. Simang served as envoy in London from 1995 to 1998. The struggle stalwart also served as the ANC's Treasurer General from 1997 until 2007. The family spokesperson has also shared his fondest memories of the early days of the struggle in exile in Tanzania. So I was taken as a child of the family. Uh, we lived in the camps and um, whenever there was an opportunity and we were allowed to go out on weekends, we would be, he would receive us uh, together with uh, Aunt Eggie. Um, when I did, uh, when I finished my training, I went back briefly to Dar es Salaam and we were in touch most of the time. It was very protective of me, I must say. Um, but essentially, a person who was very strong on education, he looked at the, after the Somafco uh, affairs. Uh, we got along very well. The ANC's Veterans League has hailed Uncle Mendy as an outstanding member of the class of selfless cadres who do not see the ruling party as a vehicle for self-enrichment. Veteran League's President Snugi Zigalala. Those are people who, who, who dedicated their lives uh, for the struggle were selfless people who did not care about material things. Unfortunately, our young people, especially those who are in leadership, the only thing that they're looking at is self-enrichment. That is what is killing the ANC. And so we are saying that if we get rid of self-enrichment, we make sure that our people live with what they earn, not to go and, and look for more, more money that they have not earned properly. ANC Veterans League Secretary General Natsu Kumalo says Msimang will always be remembered for his immense contributions in the party. If you have to go through the history of our cadres, especially like Ubabu Mendim Simang, it uh, really gives you that strength to say that they have really paved the way for us and to ensure that uh, they left this legacy 
intact and it is for us as to how we are going to take it further. So we will always be remem remembering people like Ndatem Simanga because of his commitment and a commitment that had no uh, uh, material gains but he was really ready to see to it that we are free and uh, everybody's comfortable in the in this country. That is what we are going to be having. Some of the ANC NEC members, such as Phoebe Botkhitir Kubule, visited his home to pay their respects. We are still in shock um, and on behalf of the ANC we came to pay our respect and also to discuss with the family um, arrangements about what's going to happen with the funeral and the memorial services. Uncle Mendy is expected to be laid to rest on Saturday. Memorial services are scheduled for Pretoria and Johannesburg this week. Ambali Tetani in Vatorkluf in Pretoria. Activists against gender-based violence in Africa say the justice systems in many countries on the continent still discriminate against women and that laws that are supposed to protect women who've been victims of abuse are not being implemented. They've also criticized the annual 16 days of activism for no violence against women and children as being ineffective. Ditaba Zotetsi reports. Women in Africa say the 16 days of activism campaign has not eradicated abuse of women and children. However, they say the positive side of the campaign is that it can be used to highlight the plight of victims of abuse. They are taking a stand against abuse and want to bring change in their respective countries. They have called on African heads of state to take practical steps to bring an end to women and children abuse and not just pay lip service. Leslie N. Foster is the executive director of Masimanyani Women's Rights International, an NGO that offers help to abuse women and children. So the campaign, in my analysis, is weak. You know, that it's a kind of nice-sounding campaign, but it lacks the depth of analysis and it, it lacks the um, you know, effective implementation that is needed to address, address this problem. One of the, the, the lessons we've learned is it has to start very young, very young. You know, you, you, even at two or three, children are watching um, cartoons in which there's a lot of violence. Ghanaian activist Louise Agbodo says the patriarchy remains a big challenge in Africa. Uh, if we put out strategies like education, forming clubs in schools, going to the communities to talk to uh, traditional leaders, making sure our justice system is working, and also if we can have men coming on board to talk to other men that a woman you are supposed to protect, you are supposed to love, they are not sex objects, they are not punching bags, I mean, it will go a long way to eradicate this violence against women in Africa. Another women's rights activist, Teresa Jimo from Mozambique, says African countries are facing similar problems when it comes to women and children abuse. I think that they are doing what they can, but that, that isn't enough. I think that they should do more. Let me give you an example. They can pass some laws, okay? They can pass some laws, but then the laws cannot be implemented so it means that actually they are pretending to do something but in the reality they don't do because if we have laws but the laws are not being used so what are they there for so yeah i think that they should do more jeanette karahako says in uganda women abuse is a norm a lot of rights have been trampled on so we still have a long way to go but i believe we shall get there we are doing a good job Gender-based violence, we still have those issues, but in rural areas and maybe the uh, population. And also on the streets, sometimes we get violated, sexually harassed. 16 Days of Activism is a global campaign highlighting the plight of victims of abuse and will end on the 10th of December. I'm Dittabasodezi in Johannesburg. Going back in time to today in 2001, the ex-wife of former South Africa's President F.W. de Klerk, Mariki de Klerk, is found murdered in a luxury beachfront apartment in Cape Town. She was stabbed from behind and strangled to death. Today in History, 2001. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves 
with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Good morning. In the headlines, former intelligence officials in Burundi gave a detailed account of an organized program to eliminate critiques of President Pierre Nkurunziza's third term in office. The Southwest State Parliament of Somalia once again postpones the region's presidential elections scheduled for December 5, citing technical problems, and Uganda holds special court sessions for crimes against women to deal with a backlog of thousands of rape, sexual abuse, and domestic violence cases. Details at the top of the hour. Channel Africa. Culture and joy Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. At least 125 women have been raped by unknown gunmen during a 10-day spree in South Sudan. This according to the global medical organization Doctors Without Borders, or MSF. The African nation has suffered five years of brutal civil war, and despite a fragile peace accord signed two months ago, the situation in the country remains volatile. For more on this issue, we're now joined on the line by MSF's Martins Dada. Martin, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Thank you for having me. Now, tell us more about the raping of such a large number of women in a very short space of time. What had MSF gathered? Well, Bentiu is a, a town in the northern part of South Sudan where MSF runs a medical facility to the benefit of the population. In the last two weeks, however, our teams have provided emergency medical and mental health care to over 150 women who, and girls who have been assaulted, raped, um, beaten um, in, in, in the last two weeks and who have come to seek medical attention. Now, to put this in proper context, Lulu, um, our teams see an average of 10 patients a month in the last 10 months and we've seen within a period of two weeks um, almost 20 to 30 times that number. Is it still not known who is behind these attacks? Well, we know that these attacks, according to the reports from the survivors themselves, are people in groups, uh, men in groups, uh, from 5 to 20 in number, who have attacked and uh, committed this um, who have been who are the uh, assailants in these cases and they've robbed uh, people of money of clothes of um, of everything that they need to support their families and uh, these women and girls um, ranging from as young as 10 years even younger to women uh, who are grandmothers older than 65 um, have been dispossessed and uh, sometimes even abducted for a short period. Now, has there been any reaction from the South Sudanese officials or is it something that they've only just found out about? What's the status there? Well, immediately, our teams in the field have been in touch with key authorities 
at state level, which is the state of North Leach, but also at the, the, the central level. Um, we have talked, or we have uh, spoken with uh, United Nations um, agencies and other agencies, and, uh, and we have asked that uh, all stakeholders try to increase the safety and security uh, for the people of South Sudan as they try to access humanitarian assistance. Now, speaking of the victims and the traumatic experience that they've been through, I understand that amongst them were children and the elderly. Tell us about that. Yeah, we, amongst uh, the, the, the people who have been um, assaulted are girls, young, young girls who... Um, uh, who have been, uh, who, who have had bruises, who've been, who've had injuries, who've had even lacerations in different parts of their bodies. Uh, we've um, had reports of uh, children having to watch their mothers being violated, and and elderly women being being uh, beaten and assaulted. This is obviously very appalling, heartbreaking for our teams on the ground, for the survivors themselves and their family, and, but also for the people uh, who, who, who are managing them, many of whom are local South Sudanese as well. Do you think that the situation in South Sudan has been highlighted in, enough, and is enough being done to ensure the safety of the people of South Sudan, especially women and children and the elderly? Well, from the point of view of a medic, um, our first priority is to provide life-saving care, which includes um, treatment to first prevent the the, the serious and sometimes uh, difficult side effects of trauma like this, including to prevent uh, sexually transmitted infections, unintended pregnancy, HIV infections, and to prevent the the psycho, psycho psychological effects that uh, that that can um, make their lives difficult in the future. So this is um, our priority at this moment. And finally, Martin's, uh, Justin, uh, Martin, just in wrapping up, with regards to the South Sudanese government, I, you mentioned earlier that you um, notified them immediately and trying to work around the situation. Are they doing enough to ensure um, the safety of the people of South Sudan in terms of getting reports from you, 125 women being raped by unknown gunmen within a 10-day spree, that's a very, very traumatic time. Yes, it is traumatic for the for these women, and I must say that actually that number increased slightly uh, to over 150. Uh, but we have done... Um, we have alerted and we are we're discussing with, the, with all authorities. We've provided the information to them. And we, are, we, 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 we have um, made sure that they received enough information so that they can continue to work on improving the security and improving the safety for the population. On our side, there's still a lot to be done. We're still detaching more uh, medical staff to be able to deal with the situation. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much, Lulu. That's Martin Dada from the Global Medical Organization, Doctors Without Borders, joining us on the line. Going back in time to today in 1977, Jean Bedel Bukasa, ruler of the Central African Empire, crowns himself. Bukasa was the head of state of the Central African Republic from 1966 to December 1976. After 11 years as president, he dissolved the government and declared the state a monarchy, the Central African Empire. Today in history, 1977.
Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex people in Zimbabwe are living in fear as they continue to face discrimination, persecution and violence. Exorcism is the most common tool of torture used against sexual minorities in Zimbabwe, although little changes can be seen after such prayers or rituals. Channel Africa's Simon Muchemo has more from Harare. Homosexuality is taboo to some people in Zimbabwe such that there is a law that criminalizes the act. Even former President Robert Mugabe was on record condemning homosexuals, calling them worse than pigs and dogs. Meanwhile, the new dispensation led by President Emerson Munangagwa is somehow tolerant. Channel Africa met a transsexual who is in a transition process from a man to a woman. A lot is not known regarding such people who are also stigmatized as homosexuals, yet they are not. As a result, religious people have been accused of torturing LGBT members through exorcism. To get more on the matter, Channel Africa visited Alessandra Brie at a hiding spot in Harare. Alessandra identifies as a female was born with male genitals but had female hormones. Her parents died while she was still very young, but when her relatives noticed who she was, she was subjected to torture in what they were calling exorcism. Many believe LGBTs are possessed with evil spirits and require spiritual deliverance. Funny enough to know I've got a relative who's um, a mime fundacy or someone prominent in church. She was one of the people I told before I started my transition that this is where I'm going. I'm now becoming that full woman because since I was young, you've always known I've been different, but now I'm becoming who I've always been so that at least there's no confusion. I'm just one person, a, a lady, a female. And she was, she was like, okay, fine. She, she didn't say anything bad. The moment I came out on social media, with like my picture like showing progress of my transition she ranted at me said bad words hey you go to hell hey you you are not something we would accept you see and you know a family member whom i actually told my story before anyone else knew decided coming back uh, coming back at me in public so this is also what's happening to me but in private spaces you might get accepted but in public, that same person who didn't say anything bad about you, they start ranting at you to a point where they want you to be hated by everyone else. Alessandra added, I would, I would be asked to go somewhere and be a man. And when I go there, the people whom, are supposed to, whom I'm supposed to befriend now see me as a woman and say, no, you're gender confused, HEC. It's because with trans persons, our characteristics, our body features, often at times, actually show us that we are different, show people that we are different. And from there, that's where people now think of it being easier to stigmatize us than to understand. And coming back to, so that's really the foundation. Sylvester Mnyaradzinyamatendeza is a programs officer at Gays and Lesbian Association of Zimbabwe, Girls, and this to say on exorcism. When somebody discloses or is found out to be like that, it's usually labeled a negative regard. It's it's devil. It's it's satanism. It's it's a bad spirit. It's a, it's an omen. And um, what we have noticed is a, a number of our committee members that are forced by their family members to go to these churches for exorcism. But the bottom line is nobody really knows what causes sexuality. If I'm to ask you today, I assume you're heterosexual. What, why did you decide or how did you choose? Nobody seems to have a country and from what, what really causes what determines one sexual orientation or gender identity and expression. Munyarazi said exorcism might not change sexual orientation. Some of them they do confirm, trying to fit into society, trying to fit into, to get acceptance and buy-in from the family. Some say no, no. Some are even forced by the families or even by these church leaders to to offer testimonies of having been cleansed, having been... But later in life we realize, okay, nobody, sexuality, you cannot touch it, it's offending, you cannot, you, you cannot do anything about it. Pastor Caroline Maposhere is a Zimbabwean-based nurse, theologian, 
and reproductive health rights activists who condemned exorcism, especially on transsexuals. Out of ignorance, a lot of them um, would give would give it a name. You know, through stereotyping, they would then say, "You have uh, a demon of a woman if you are a guy who is behaving like a, 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 a girl." They would say, "You have a demon of a woman, or you you are possessed, or you know." Um, you are cursed, or they, you know, there's always a name to, 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 to the condition so that then they can exorcise someone. And at times it's really out of not knowing what's happening. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. A senior African Development Bank staff member says that the 2018 African Economic Conference features practical solutions from regional integration experts and the private sector. The conference, hosted by United Nations Development Programme in Kigali, Rwanda, is under the theme Regional and Continental Integration for Africa's Development. The EAC is the leading forum for discussing African issues of the day, bringing together regional integration practitioners to provide practical solutions, especially in the implementation of the African Continental Free Trade Area. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has urged government leaders in the G20 countries to include Africa in mechanisms to fight illicit financial flows, explaining that the fraud costs the continent billions of U.S. dollars every year. Examples of illicit financial flows include illegal movements of money or capital from one country to another, while the income is from illegal activities such as tax evasion, drug sales, dirty money transfers, and money transfers to find finance, terrorism, against, among others, many other forms. While speaking at a session about building consensus at the G20 Leader Summit in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Kagame said that the African Union attaches great importance to stronger international and financial tax systems. Analysts expect third-quarter gross domestic product numbers to show that South Africa has come out of a technical recession. Stats SA will release the figures later this afternoon. The country fell into recession in the second quarter on the, bank, on the back of a dismal performance in the agricultural sector. A recession is characterized by two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Improved performance in the retail, wholesale and manufacturing sectors are expected to contribute significantly to the recovery in the third quarter. Economist at Econometrics, Sam Rowland. Indicators coming out in the third quarter proven largely supportive of a recovery into positive growth. Um, We're likely to see still weak growth around 1% uh, going forward, but contributing factors towards this have been a surprising performance in uptick in manufacturing and the trade sectors, which is, of course, retail and wholesale trade. The government of Eswatini has been identified as a major threat to the country's financial stability. As a major player in the economy of the country, the government has on numerous occasions put the country at risk financially, thus shaking stability. According to the Central Bank of Eswatini's integrated annual report for 2017-18, identified risks to financial stability have been associated with the government. The report reveals that government finances, including the persistent accumulation of domestic areas continue to be a challenge that could adversely affect financial stability. Lesotho's Ministry of Energy and Meteorology has moved to assure motorists that the current fuel shortage experienced by Puma filling stations is being addressed as a matter of urgency. The ministry indicated that the issue has been solved as delivery trucks are already arriving with the fuel consignments to refill outlets in the country and is expecting the shortage situation to normalize soon. Since Monday, motorists across the country have been scrambling to fill up their tanks as Puma filling stations ran dry. 
The US dollar is trading at 10.32 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.87 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 3.84 Brazilian Rule, at 66.52 Russian Ruble, and at 70.13 Indian Rupee. 6.89 Chinese Yuan and 13.68 dollars to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,235, platinum $805 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $62.33 a barrel from an African perspective. Our sports updates up next was Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with football news. Real Madrid's Croatia midfielder Luka Modric is the 2018 Ballon d'Or. Winner, breaking Cristiano Ronaldo's Lionel Messi's decade-long hold on the prestigious award. Juventus forward and 2017 winner Ronaldo came second, while Atletico Madrid and France striker Anton Griezmann came third. This year, Mondrić won the European Champions League with Spanish giants Real and then guided Croatia to the World Cup final in July. Mondrić says he cannot, he can rather change this for the World Cup. I would change my all individual awards for World Cup. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Even this success that we achieved at the World Cup is for such a small country as Croatia is something amazing. But I would, like I told you, I would change all of this for World Cup. But how it didn't happen, this is a, a great feeling to win at least this and uh, very happy for it. South African national under-20 football team Amajita kicked off the defense of their Kosafa under-20 championship title in an emphatic fashion yesterday as they humiliated Mauritius 5-0 in the Group B opening game played at the Ngana Stadium in Kitwe in Zambia. A brace from Orlando Paris striker Lyle Foster and goals from Ngosing Pilengobo, James Munyane and an own goal were enough to see Amajita sending a clear statement to their opponents in this tourney. Amajita head coach Tabu Sinong says this was a perfect start to the tournament. Yeah, well done to the boys. We did well. Uh, they stuck to the game plan and uh, first games of the tournament are never easy. So it's always important to create chances and not to concede goals and maybe reduce the number of mistakes. And uh, yeah, But of course, you know, you, you can never undermine uh, the, any opposition in this tournament. You can see Mauritius, there's a bit of improvement in their height. Uh, how they defend set plays because they did not give us a single goal in a set play. So there was a bit of preparation. They've got tall players aggressive, but I think uh, our individuality helps us in some moment and uh, our combination plays helped us. But uh, it's back to the drawing board. We are looking forward to the next match uh, on the 8th of December. In rugby news, one of the biggest sporting events on the local calendar, the Cape Town Sevens, hits the mother city this weekend and the competing teams have all begun descending on the city. The Blitz boys, who finished sixth in Dubai last weekend, were one of the first teams to arrive and will be hoping for an improved finish at the Cape Town Stadium. Siviwe Sheikh Soizwap says the team are looking forward to playing in front of their fans. Yeah, it's, it's amazing and I think uh, the way we started in Dubai, uh, we sort of know where the team is and uh, we sort of, we also know what we can do as a team. So um, we're very excited just to uh, have that other opportunity to, to, to be back on the field again and uh, to rectify what went wrong. So um, very excited and uh, looking forward to have that opportunity and uh, playing in front of your family, your friends, home crowd. It's, it's, it's amazing just to know that they're out there watching. Boxing news, WBC heavyweight champion Jonathan Wilder says he can't wait to face Tyson Fury again following the controversial draw in Los Angeles on Saturday. Wilder twice knocked down Fury during the fight, but many observers felt the Brighton should have won. And Fury says he thought the 33-year-old American would try to avoid a rematch with him at all costs. 
In a post on Instagram, Wilder claimed he was the more aggressive fighter and landed the more effective punches. Wilder trainer Jane Dees says he wants his fighter to take on Fury again before either of them face the holder of the other heavy title, Anton Joshua. I would like to do the Fury fight first because I think I think the rematch, I think there's unfinished business. And if they want to do it in the U.K., if the, if the, if the money makes sense in the U.K., I'd love to do it in the U.K. Deontay has already fought in the U.K. We've done a training camp in the U.K. Uh, he's also fought in Mexico and Puerto Rico. So Deontay's never had a problem traveling. We, we, we would, that's not the issue at all. And finally, with athletics, Russia's Athletics Federation will learn today whether its ban for widespread doping in place for the last three years will be lifted by the International Association of Athletics Federations, the IAAF. The IAAF's council will vote on Russia's status after hearing a report and recommendation by its task force on the sporting powers progress in meeting conditions laid down for reinstatement. An afternoon press conference has been scheduled in Monaco to announce the decision with the feeling around the principality seeming to be that the suspension may remain in place. The Russian Federation Rusev was banned by the IAAF in November 2015 after a report commissioned by the World Anti-Doping Agency WADA revealed widespread doping in the country. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sauer. UN Climate Change Conference gets underway in Poland and tributes pour in for South Africa's struggle stalwart Mendim Simang. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today from myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramakaza and Komuto Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa is Abdullah Ibrahim with a song titled Manenberg.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. Top stories, former intelligence officials in Burundi give a detailed account of an organized program to eliminate critiques of President Pierre Nkurunzi's